NSA taught me to use this device. Take this one off. Sorry, mates. <laughs> Actually, I was born and raised in northeastern PA, so I'm a Pennsylvanian, pretty near uh, to New York State. Pretty near, that's a PA thing. But um, just begin by, first of all, thanking the elders here for giving me this opportunity. It's been some time since I preached. We retired and came here in at the beginning of twenty twenty, and um, I did note that uh, encouragement and warning that we have to be out of here quickly so that they can get this set up. I, I noted that uh, hint um, to me. Also, before we get to the message, I'd just like to share the fact that um, we we were in New York State, as uh, Pastor Matt said, for uh, fifteen plus years. The Lord. I wish you could meet them. They're just a beautiful, beautiful congregation. Uh, they love the Word of God. They love the Lord. They love uh, each other. And it was difficult to leave. And then God brought us here. And from the very first day, of course, there was a positional love that comes because we are united together in Christ. And now it's it's growing, uh, of course, with uh, our experience with you in worship, gathered worship, and in um, prayer times together and serving together. Well, if you don't have your Bibles open, please uh, open them to to uh, Psalm 11. We are looking at this psalm this morning and just begin with the fact God's word is relevant. God's word is always relevant. God's word always uh, speaks to all people of all ages, of all uh, cultures and places. It is indeed, as Hebrews 4.12 tells us, It is living, active, sharper than any double-edged sword. But we also recognize the fact that at certain times and and seasons, certain passages, their relevance is just so striking that we just simply cannot miss it. Psalm 1, Psalm 11, excuse me, is one of those passages. Its relevance just cannot be missed for our time for the time, for the situation in which we find ourselves. I would like to read it to you again one more time, and maybe as we read as a congregation you didn't see it. Um, I, 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 I'm certain you will as we go through it this next time. In the Lord I take refuge... How can you say to my soul, flee as a bird to your mountain? For behold, the wicked bend the bow, they make ready their arrow upon the string to shoot in darkness at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold. His eyelids test the sons of men. The Lord tests righteousness, the righteous and the wicked. And the one who loves violence, his soul hates. Upon the wicked, he will rain snares. Fire and brimstone and burning wind will be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteousness. The upright will behold his face. Let's bow just for a moment in prayer. Father, we come to you. We thank you for uh, this blessed uh, church that you have ordained, the local church. Thank you for bringing us together for gathered worship. And that's the prayer of our hearts. That you will be lifted up. That you will be worshipped here this morning. And we will thank you even now for your Spirit's work among us. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. 
Now the question, if you didn't get it, the question posed here in verse 3 of Psalm 11, that is a burning question of our day. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? And it's from this question that I took the title for today's message. What are we to do? What are we to do? In Psalm 11, we have faith's response to fear. We're told that this is indeed a Psalm of David. He's in, in some sort of danger here from the wicked who are, are shooting at him with arrows. And his friends, his advisors, they're counseling him to flee to the mountains. But David answers and begins with a, an affirmative that the Lord is his refuge, not some mountain. What are the righteous to do when everything all around them, the very foundations seem to be giving way, being crushed? Do we run away? Do we, do we drop out of sight, hide? Or will we, as David will show us here, take refuge in the Lord? Now, what situation was going on in David's life at this time? We don't really know. Some commentators believe that it might possibly be during the time when David was being chased by Saul. Others feel it was the time, and we've had these as we've gone through Psalm uh, the last few weeks, others have mentioned this, uh, that it may be the time of Absalom when he's trying to take over the throne from his father. No less than Charles Haddon Spurgeon believes that the first was more possible when he's running from Saul. The first thing that came to my mind, though, when I read these commentators saying that is, but in both of those instances, what did David do? He fled to the mountains. So I don't know if that, if that fits. I don't know that we know specifically what, what is going on here. It certainly appears, though... It may have been early in those situations before he went, but it it appears here that David, whatever the situation was, it was tough. Now the relevance, I don't want to take a lot of time on it. We could spend a lot of time, but why is this so relevant? Are we not living in a day where our society, our cultures, the very foundations are being leveled like a building, being demolished by a wrecking ball so that it might be totally, radically transformed into something that, at least an old man like me, I I just, I don't recognize anymore. Maybe a better analogy that came to my mind was, you remember the, and maybe this for you young people won't, older people, remember the story of the little Dutch boy and the dike protecting his town from the sea encroaching. And he saw a leak and he went and he stuck his finger to, to, plug, to plug that leak to save his town. But the only difference really here is the growing number of holes. There's more holes then there are fingers to plug them, it seems. And the holes are enlarging, they're becoming fissures. And the dam or the dike of our, of our society seems like it's just about ready to give way, to burst. Quickly, let's just note a couple things. Let's start with the God-ordained institution of marriage, of the family. A marriage of one man to one woman till death do us part. Well, over the decades we've seen the divorce rate skyrocket. And now that hole is 
enlarging into a fissure where uh, people no longer are even thinking of marriage. It's, it's just not even important to them. There's no respectability, no need to, for it. No, They just live together. They just live together. Children are seen more and more as a burden to individuals, to their freedom. They want to be all that they can be, and that's pretty difficult, they feel, when they have the responsibility of children. I saw an article just this week that uh, was talking about the birth rate in our country now is not keeping up with death. We're not uh, replacing ourselves. This church does a fine job. (laughs) We're making up for some others. I also read uh, uh, an NBC article where an environmentalist, and she was also a a politician, that uh, she said we need to stop having babies. Science proves... You heard that one? Science proves that kids are bad for the earth. And so it's morally right that we just stop having them. You take the close to the family fissure, another leak in our society, and it is growing ever larger, is the sexual revolution that we're experiencing. In the 60s, 70s, when I was a kid, free love, free love. And now there's this huge crevice in the, in the dike, the dam of our society, where we are experiencing the LGBTQ. And if you haven't kept up with that, now it is LGBTQ. I-A and then they put a plus on the end just to cover anything. Just to cover it all. The perversions of human sexuality have become so transformative we can't even tell the difference between a man and a woman. There's such confusion. And that confusion coming from those who are woke in our society is trying to confuse our children. Little kids as well in the schools helping them identify what they are. We were in the Eastwood Mall, I don't know, last week, week before, and there was a man, obviously a man, dressed as a woman. My wife Kathy was coming out of the ladies' restroom and passed him as he was going in to the ladies' restroom. Crazy! Insane! And you superhero fans, I I heard that Marvel now on Disney Plus has some official LGBTQTIA plus character. There's a growing crevice in the foundations of our culture, the purpose of government. Romans 13 tells us that God has ordained government, the purpose of government is to reward good and to punish evil. Our government is broken. We're in a day when the governing bodies of our society protect the immoral and even criminals and make those who do good afraid. We're seeing a day when criminals are unrestrained because they don't fear the consequences. But the police are restrained because they fear the consequences of stopping the criminals. The murder rate. Abortion is just horrendous holocaust. But on top of that now we're seeing in the cities more and more increasing murder rates. And I think for me, and I'm sure for many of us, the most disturbing of all is the holes that are growing, those cracks and cavities within the professing, even evangelical church. 
So we see society turning against Christianity more and more. Again, another article this week, MSNBC, I think it was, they had a panel discussion. And one of the panelists just very clearly with full conviction said the evangelical movement is anti-intellectual, anti-science, and a moral freak show. I don't know. Escaping the backlash, becoming more acceptable to this transforming society, I I don't know. But there's a growing number of ministries and churches signing on to the whole wokeness and seeking to put a biblical basis to it. Making the gospel a social justice gospel and weakening sola scriptura in order to do so. So, a whole lot more. That's a little taste. We're all very much aware of that unless you are living in a total isolation uh, bubble. Verse 3. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? When you look at the times in which we are living, those of you who are uh, Tolkien fans, Lord of the Ring fans, uh, there's a time where they're going through the mountain and uh, you may recall this evil is coming. Their, their whole world is being turned upside down. The foundations are quaking. and So this party is going through the mountain and they come to two tunnels and Gandalf the leader, he can't remember which tunnel to take. So they sit down and talk while he thinks a while and there's this real, real wisdom here from this book where Frodo says I wish, I, de- I wish it need not have happened in my lifetime and Gandalf said so do I so do all who live to see such times but that is not for them to decide all we have to decide is what to do with the time that is given to us what to do I No, I do. And so I assume you also, we want to, we need to hear. We need to be reminded, not of a wizard's counsel, but of the counsel of the Spirit of God. As he speaks to us through David. For Psalm 11 speaks of such a time in the life of David where the foundations are being destroyed The nation was experiencing upheaval. And we hear counsel coming to David from his advisors. Most important, we want to hear David's counsel. Counsel inspired, God breathed in the Holy Scriptures. So for those who want to take a notes outline, three main sections here. David's affirmation of faith. David's advisor's counsel to him. And David's response to or answer to that counsel, if you like alliteration. His answer to that counsel. So let's begin now to unpack this just a little bit. I got a... It's been a year and a half. (laughs) And so we, I know I need to be careful here. You're going to go home and your roast is going to be just a little piece of leather down in the bottom of your crock pot. Your pot roast. Does anybody eat pot roast anymore? I love it. Okay, let's begin and unpack this passage a little bit. David's affirmation of his faith. Now, I see it as he's been getting this counsel and he finally gets the point. He has to address it. And he addresses it by making, first of all, this clear affirmation of his faith. A statement of his commitment in the Lord. And again, I think it's because of the counsel he's been given. I don't, it's not necessarily bad counsel. David did run to the mountains sometimes. There are times when we... We see underground churches formed. So, but it may have been the attitude that he saw. 
the discouragement that I see this in a sense as an admonition to his counselors. And he does so or begins so with this strong uh, statement of faith. Psalm 11, the first part of verse 1, In the Lord I take refuge. Note more closely these words he uses. There's clarity here. This is so succinctly stated. It is an affirmation of trust in the Lord. Now we've had it in our Isaiah study, those that come to 9.30 hour. Several men in their passages have dealt with it too. But note the term here, the name for God used. Capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. Yahweh. This is the name of God's covenantal relationship. God has a lot of names that are used for him in the Old Testament by the writers of Scripture. This name, this is the name God gave of himself to Moses at the burning bush back in Exodus chapter 3, 14 and 15. I am that I am, Yahweh. Tell them I am sent you. And this name reveals to us that God is all sufficient. All sufficient. God is in need of nothing. Nothing outside of himself. Contrary to some bad theology, God does not need us. God doesn't need us. He didn't create us because he had a need of something. That he had a a shortage of something. A weakness in himself. That's kind of difficult for us to understand because we're very needy, aren't we? We are completely dependent upon him. For everything. But he is sufficient. He is unneedy. He is independent of anything and everyone but himself. He's the transcendent creator above his creation and he is always the same. His name is I am who I am. Not I am who I used to be. Not I am who I'm looking forward to being. I am who I am always. He doesn't change. David says, this is who I take refuge in. It's in Yahweh, the unchangeable God. That I, that's my rock. That's my place of refuge. And that place stands firm. That's another key word here, the, the refuge. The refuge. That's where I go. You know, it's in situations like we are experiencing now as Christians in our nation, seeing all the foundations falling, that that's when we find out where our refuge is. That's where we find out. And David, David, his refuge isn't in some man, not even himself. It's not in Israel's armies. It's not in David's financial resources. It's not in God and the government of Israel. It's in God and God alone. When the dam of this life is breaking and we feel as if we might be swept away, when everything seems out of control, they reveal to us where our trust is where it is your 401k where's our trust where's our trust and it shows us that's true of us individually that's true of the local church that's true of the elders and David's affirming 
that even in this great time of peril, he wants them to know without any doubt his trust is in God, the unchangeable one. Today we ask ourselves, in whom do I put my trust? That's what he wanted to force his advisors to do with all the insanity and chaos. Where do I put my trust? Now don't misunderstand me. We're, we're in a republic and, and we have responsible citizenships. We're going to work to help and repair and we should vote and all the good things that we're supposed to do. Work with fellow citizens and government and anyway. But when we do that, we better make sure that the trust, our refuge, is in God. It can't be in those things. It can't be in those... There are humans. Humans fail. Best of men are men at best. They failed us in the past. Obviously, there's a lot of failure going on right now. And there will be in the future. The only one who's never failed us is Yahweh, Lord God Almighty. I am who I am. That is foundational. That's foundational. Times of a stable government, times when you had a Christianized culture, um, we were able to enjoy, get along quite easily. The, the laws, the, the standards of morality were acceptable to us. But those are all breaking down. So what, do the tr- what are the righteous to do? Put their trust in God. So that was his affirmation. What's his advisor's counsel? Um, he starts out, How can you say to my soul? Uh, again, as, as he's beginning the psalm, it seems that... Um, He wants to get across this, that his faith is in the Lord. Something that they should have known. Something that they should also affirm with him. And so he starts out that way. And he says, So how? How can you possibly say to my soul? And then he starts quoting them. What they've said to him. Flee. That was their advice. Flee as a bird to your mountain. And I think understood there, flee to the, as a bird to your mountain for refuge. For refuge. And David wanted to make sure he clarified his refuge. A bird. They're small, they're skittish. We watch them all the time in our backyard. You make one step though and off they go. And here they're, they say, yeah, David, run, take flight. You're but a bird. There's so many, it's so strong. Go stay someplace under the radar. What's the basis of their counsel? Verse 2 and 3. The wicked are behind this broken foundations. The situation here is that these wicked ones are bending the bow, knocking their arrows, and shooting in the darkness at the upright in heart. They're the enemies. The hate, the upright. With David, this may have meant literally, militarily, shooting actual arrows at him, trying to take his life. But it's used many times in Scripture, in the Psalms even, to refer to verbal assaults, manipulations behind the scenes in the darkness, as it were behind closed doors. And how the wicked work? Behind closed doors. They do that at least until maybe they get the upper hand and then it gets more more bold, more outwardly aggressive. The situation laid out in verse 2, there are wicked men who are trying to destroy all these foundations. And then verse 3 talks about the enormity of the situation. It's time to back off. Time to get out of town, David. The foundations are destroyed. There's nothing 
to do. And that is the growing situation that we are facing. And some counselors say to God's people today in this country, the wicked, they've gained the upper hand. They're becoming bolder. There's nothing we can, nothing we can do. There's nothing we can do. Jesus was so clear in his teaching to us in John chapter 15. If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do for my name's sake because they do not know the one who sent me. Chapter 16, verse 1. These things I've spoken to you that you may be kept from stumbling. They will make you outcasts from the synagogue. But an hour is coming for everyone who kills you to think that he is offering God a service. We don't want to be naive. The radical transformation of our culture, those who want to bring this about, all these things contrary to the clarity of God's word, they know Christians are an obstacle. The world system wants to throw off any yoke of morality, any yoke of God upon them, of accountability, and so Christianity is one of, if not the main target. Subtly it's been going on behind the scenes for a long time, but now it's becoming more aggressive, like that panelist. Anti-intellectual, anti-science, moral fanatics. So the burning question of our day, verse 3, and in various forms the counsel of David's advisors seems to come I just ignore it. I hear somebody. I, I, I just don't want to do anything about it. I just ignore it. You don't want to feed on it too much. There's the opposite too. But an isolation by, by giving in. This is the dangerous that I see the church giving in little by little. little more, little more, little more compromising. Their counsel, I think, was well-meaning. But it came out of fear. David recognized that. So David reminds them. Third thing then, David's answer to their advice, verses 4 through 7. He is answering now the question of, that they posed there in verse 3. What can the righteous do? But it's interesting how he does this. He, he basically answers that question, but he does so by answering a different question. To whom are the righteous to turn? Where are the righteous to go? We see David teaches them, starts out, the Lord is in his holy temple. Why are you fearing? The Lord, Yahweh, is in his holy temple. The one that we have our, seek our refuge. And Yahweh in his holy temple always bespeaks worship. So David really here, I believe, is telling him, worship the Lord. Worship Yahweh. The temple here is not the temple on this earth. Solomon's temple wasn't even built. So it's not the temple here. It's the throne in heaven. His holy temple. Holy and God's transcendence. God's otherliness. He's not like anything else. He's unique. He deserves our worship. We won't turn there. The 930 hour people. Isaiah chapter 6, 1 through 4. It's talking about, it's giving a scene, whether a vision or uh, he was transported there. Uh, but here we have a scene in heaven where we 
see the majesty of this God we claim to follow and what are the seraphim, these beings that are awesome, what are they doing? They're worshiping. They're worshiping God. Uh, it made me think of uh, this scene in heaven. It's taken me a little while. I, I, I have a new Bible. And the pages are still sticking on me. I don't know. I should have brought my old Bible. I put markers in and they're still sticking. But it made me think of this. In Revelation 20, verse... No, that's not the one. There we go. 15. A scene in heaven. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. For all the nations will come and worship before you. For your righteous acts have been revealed. Worship. He deserves our our worship. It's interesting, the Psalms are full of uh, questions to God and trials and tribulations and why is this happening? God, I can't take this. And all the stuff that is very human. And there's a pattern again and again and again in the Psalms. The psalmist will share the, the situation and then he gets his eyes off the situation and he gets them on to God. And what does he do in the end? Worship. Praise God. Worship. Fear vanishes in faith when we see God. And he goes on, the second thing, the Lord's throne is in heaven. His throne, that's talking about the sovereignty of Yahweh. God is on his throne. Sitting in heaven, he's, he's ruling over all the earth. You believe that? We're, we're, good, we're good Bible. God is sovereign. When things get tough, do we really believe that? Do we really recognize what the scripture teaches about that? Ephesians chapter 1 11. We've obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to his purpose. His purpose who works all things after the counsel of his will. Nothing. Nothing. Somebody, I think it was maybe last week. Josh, uh, did you the Maverick Molecule? I know, somebody said it. There's not one maverick molecule out there, as R.C. Sproul said. I put together a whole lot. We obviously have time for a little. But God's will shall prevail. Job 42.2 I know you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. The heart of man, he plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. Proverbs 16.9 Even the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Proverbs 21.1 Genesis 50.20 As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. And of course, Romans 8, 28, 29. All things. This upheaval we're seeing, this transformation of the foundations of our society, our culture. It's not outside. God's not up there. Oh, man, what do I do now? I knew if I... Nothing happens. Nothing. Nothing happens outside his sovereign control. And because he is sovereign, the psalmist goes on, David goes on to point out, 
His eyes behold, his eyelids test the sons of men. I think this is just parallelism, maybe. Uh, some suggest, and perhaps uh, this is true as well. His eyes behold, his eyelids test. It's saying his eyes and his eyes. He's, God is really concentrating. You know how sometimes you squint to see? I'm starting to get cataracts and I don't see so good anymore. And so I sometimes you squint. And, and so his eyes, his eyelids. Proverbs 15.3 The eyes of the Lord are in every place watching the evil and the good. His eyes are beholding, they're testing the sons of men. He's watching the sons of men. Hebrews 4.13 There's no creature hidden from his sight. But all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him to whom we have to do. Romans 14, 12. So then each one of us will give an account of himself to God. What what does man say? In Psalm 10, verse 4. The wicked in the haughtiness of his countenance, does not seek him. And his thoughts are, there's no God. Nobody's watching me. In verse 11, he has hidden his face. He'll never see it. God won't see what I'm doing. He fails to realize... This is a, it's speaking anthropomorphically, which is a big long word, which, and I probably don't pronounce it right. It means God is spirit. We can't, we can't understand. So it gives them human attributes so that we can get a, a concept here. In Revelation chapter 20, verse 12, and I saw the dead and the great and the small standing before the throne. The books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged from the things which were written in the book according to their deeds. He sees. Sees everything. Every word. I guess that would be hears, but he's aware of every word, every deed. Every thought, every last one, every last one, God sees, God's watching his creation. He's the sovereign king, the sovereign ruler, sovereign judge. He goes on, he says, the Lord is watching and the Lord approves or condemns. Verse 5. The Lord tests the righteous and the wicked. He's contrasting here the wicked with the righteous. He not only sees the deeds that are going on, but he also pronounces a verdict on them. So try in the sense of, uh, of a praise and, and approve or condemn. God does that clearly in scriptures. The wheat and the tares, sheep and goats, We just saw in Revelation 20, if their name is in the book of life or it is not. A sovereign God, the judge of all the earth. And this uh, verse 5b, he tests the righteous and the wicked and the one who loves violence his soul hates. So he looks determines the righteous he determines the wicked and if they love violence what a sobering he hates his soul hates just thought of a Psalm 7 11 God is a righteous judge and a God who has indignation every day. He's upset with a sin. They think that they're hiding. They think they can get away with it. But God sees. And he's the perfect judge. 
and he will judge the wicked. That's verse 6. Can't be the judge of all the world and be an unjust judge. He will judge everyone, every sin. Do you realize not one single sin will go unjudged? Not one. The righteous judge will judge everyone, every sin. Now, they will either be judged by God's condemnation to hell, or they will be judged in Jesus Christ, but they will be judged. He's a perfect righteous judge. He can do nothing else. And so he talks about that judge, judgment. Upon the wicked, he will rain snares. Fire and brimstone. That draws our attention and minds back to Sodom and Gomorrah. Often a picture of judgment in the Bible. Genesis 19. Fire and brimstone with a burning wind. You know how when you're trying to start your fire so you can do the hot dogs and you... So you get down. Well, the fire's there and this is just adding oxygen to it. This burning, burning wind. He goes on. That, and, and that condemnation, that judgment... will be the portion of their cup. I think it's in Psalm 75. My old Bible goes over into it. Yes, Psalm 75, verse 8. For a cup is in the hand of the Lord, Yahweh. And the wine foams, it is well mixed, and he pours out this. Surely all the wicked of the earth must drain and drink it down to its dregs. A cup. The same cup that Jesus drank for those who come to him in faith, believing the cup of God's wrath. Psalm 75, 8, God's wrath for the wicked. Jesus' cup, Matthew 26, 39, God's wrath on him for all that he draws to himself. Then, verse 7, the righteous will see him. Here we have... He says what he's going to do to the wicked judgment and here's what he's going to do to the righteous. And it starts out, for the Lord is righteous. Yahweh. Yahweh is righteous. He loves righteousness. And the upright will behold his face. 1 John 3.2 When we see him, We'll be like him, for we see him as he is. Revelation uh, 22, where God is going to come down and dwell in the midst of his people, and we will see him. Beatific vision, to see God's face. That's that's an awesome promise in scripture, and boy is it a confusing thing to figure out. I think there's two ideas here. One is that in times of testing, we seek God, we see Him in a wondrous way. Sometimes those things that we look at, oh, like like Frodo, I wish this didn't happen in my time. I wish this wasn't going on. But when we trust in God as our refuge, when we get our eyes on Him, see Him in His wonder. He shows himself to us more clearly often in those times through the scriptures. And then, of course, heaven. That's Psalm 11. Again, it's clear, simple. The foundations are being broken. Life is changing drastically. It will for you individually, Christian. It will for this body of believers as Christians. 
Unless God in His grace, mercy, brings in revival and we pray for that, it's changing, isn't it? I'm not an old morbid preacher. Can't help but see it. Things are changing. And we better right from the get-go. In the Lord, we'll trust. He will be our refuge. Preach it to yourself daily, many times a day. He's my refuge. He's how I look to. Recognize, and we can still love and witness to these wicked that are doing, end up doing these things because we know God's got a plan here. We want to see them come to Christ, Lord willing. We know no matter what they, they do, God is just. God is just. Well, conclusion, I just want to take a couple minutes. I, I just, there's a second burning question that this passage, though it doesn't come out and confront us specifically or uh, words laid out explicitly about it, but it confronts us with how can a person be made righteous, upright before the Lord who sees and knows all. That was again a 9.30 hour. Right? He knows it. He knows it all. He talks about verse 2, the upright in heart. Verse 3, what can the righteous do? Uh, Verse 5, he tests the righteous and they meet his approval. We, We saw... God is, Isaiah 6, God is holy, holy, holy. He is this transcendent, perfect, no moral corruption in God like there is in in us. He's righteous. Not only is He righteous, He loves righteousness. He, He cannot accept anything that is not righteous. Perfect is a word we used in, in the ninth third hour. God's standard is absolute perfection. And and this this news of the righteous justice of God, it's good and it's bad. It's it's good news in that we we would not want an infinitely powerful all sovereign God who was unrighteous, would we? Unjust. Could anything be more terrifying? To be both omnipotent and evil? An an immoral deity with unlimited power would make the Adolf Hitlers of this world look like petty criminals. If there is a God... We do want him righteous, and praise God, that is how he's revealed himself. The righteous one. But on the other hand, a righteous God presents a problem for us, doesn't it? In fact, man's greatest problem isn't the foundations that are being broken down. Man's greatest problems... Is God's righteousness. It's perfection. It's the righteousness of God. Why? Well, He's the Creator. He's the Sovereign. He is righteous. He is good. A righteous and good God will always, it's His character, oppose and bring judgment on that which is unrighteous or evil. All men are evil. All men are guilty. Every last one of us are unrighteous. I'm not very woke. I mean men. Everybody, ladies. So you get to be a part of it. So what does that mean? God will oppose and bring to judgment everyone. Everyone. 
So the righteousness of God is good news to righteous creatures. Terrifying to the ungodly. It should be terrifying. If it's not, if you're here today without Christ, and, and even not my preaching, just the scriptures that you saw here about God's condemnation, and doesn't affect you. You're unmoved by it. Well, that tells us one of three things. Either one, your conscience is seared because we all have done things. And Jesus takes it up to the thought life too, doesn't he? The heart. So if you're unmoved, your conscience is seared. You believe it just to be a myth. There's no judgment. It's not going to happen just like we saw in Psalm 10. Or secondly, you think yourself more righteous than you are. You think you're, you're better than you are. Comparing ourselves with others, as we said in the 9.30 hour. Or thirdly, you think God is less righteous than he is. And the Bible is absolutely clear. Absolutely clear. It proclaims the absolute righteousness of God. It exposes the unrighteousness of man. God is perfect in sovereignty, a perfect righteous sovereign. He must also be a perfect righteous judge. And we see that in Psalm 11. The Bible's clear. No one, no one, no one, no human creature is righteous. Save, obviously, our Lord. Yet Psalm 11 and throughout scriptures, it speaks of God's favor on the righteous, the upright. Now, that poses a problem. Now, God doesn't have problems. God isn't like man. But in our understanding, we look at it, well, that kind of seems like he's caught between a rock and a hard place. He must judge sin, but he also wants these righteous people. Let's just quick go to Romans. In Romans chapter 1 through chapter 3, verse 9, Paul lays out the universal sinfulness of humanity. And the summary, with all its foulness, is in chapter 3, verses 10 through 20. Just look at all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Every last one. There's none righteous, not even one. And you go down through there, all the rest of that, but that's enough. There's none righteous, not even one. And he goes on through then, we know he's speaking to all men, but then comes Chapter 3, verse 21. But now. But now. Now, apart from the law, apart from man trying to do it on his own, the righteousness of God has been manifested. Being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. For there's no distinction, all have sinned, all fall short of the glory of God. But being justified is a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed, God put up on display publicly as a propitiation in his blood for us through faith. He became sin who knew no sin so that we could be made righteous. Righteous. 
We can look at Ephesians 2, 1 through 7. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace, through faith, you've been saved. Not of yourselves. It's the gift of God. The only righteousness that those in Psalm 11, those throughout Scripture, the wheat, the sheep, the only righteousness that they have, the only possible acceptance that they have is a righteousness that comes from outside of them. Christ's righteousness. He came. He lived the perfect life that we cannot live. He lived perfectly. He came and He went to the cross and paid the price for every one of our sins so that we could be with Him forever. Take us eternity in hell. We'd never pay it back. In Christ we are righteous. Sometimes try to say it this way. When God looks at Ken Southworth, he looks at me through, you know the old rose-colored glasses, they, they change the view. God looks at me through Christ-colored glasses. Righteous. But it's Christ's Righteousness. Not my own. And that's why Romans, Paul can go on in chapter 8, verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ. Those who come to Him by faith. Because of Christ's work on our behalf, received by grace through faith. We will see His face. And be accepted. Accepted. Through Christ. So, Psalm 11 is a great reminder to us. And quite frankly, I something that I need a lot right now is I see the drastic transformation that's going on. And more and more Christian values, Christian people, Christian ministries coming under the gun more obviously, more ferociously. I need to remind myself all the time in Yahweh do I trust. In Yahweh do I trust. He's the one who is in his temple in heaven. He's the one who's sitting on his sovereign throne in heaven over all. He's the one who vengeance is mine, I will repay, thus saith the Lord. We can trust in him. But how about you? Are you in Christ? Are you counting on Jesus' righteousness? Or you still think somehow... I'm good enough. Look at Southworth. I'm a whole lot better than him. I'm good enough. There's none righteous, no, not one. The only righteousness that bears God's approval that we will see his face is that of Christ. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for Christ. We're not for... Him, what He did for wretched sinners like us, we would be condemned right along with the wicked of Psalm 11. But in Christ we are accepted. And we praise You. And we thank You. And I pray for some who may be here today that do not yet claim the righteousness of Christ, do not yet claim the payment for their sin that Christ met out for lost sinners. Even today, you give them eyes to see, ears to hear, draw them to yourself. For your great glory and their eternal benefit, we pray. Amen.
join us in Sydney as long as you are